what did you eat for breakfast? Um, oh, smoked salmon and um, scrambled egg. Very nice. Yeah, sort of thing you do in lockdown, isn't it? Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 117. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. Joining me this episode is the absolute legend, John Otway. John has had a career in music spanning 50 years, playing to 20,000 people in his hometown of Aylesbury, appearing on the Old Grey Whistle Test with Bob Harris, Top of the Pops, and other notable UK TV shows. John talks about his history of attempting to recreate the hit he had in the 70s, utilizing his extremely loyal fan base as a true pioneer of crowdfunding. We hear about his onstage antics such as somersaulting off of a ladder, and the infamous double-neck guitar that flaps. It's an absolute privilege to be able to interview John, which is why I'm releasing it on my birthday. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Here is my interview with John Otway. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Great pleasure to uh, welcome Mr. John Otway to the podcast. How are you doing? Fine, fine. Well, a bit gigless, but um, otherwise yes. fine. <laughs> yeah, so I found out about you or got exposed to your music. It was the Naughty Rhythms Tour. November set I have it written down. November second, two thousand. Doctor Feelgood, Eddie and the Hot Rods, and the Hamsters. So I'd seen the Hamsters a couple of times, but it was my first time seeing you. My dad took me, and it was actually, I think I just left the UK 
maybe uh, two weeks after that. I think that was the last gig I, I saw before I left the UK. So now, I, I, that was a really good tour to do. Um, I had the position where um, I was sort of like introducing the bands, but also mm. allowed to sort of finish off the whole show and sort of like take the big curtain call at the end, sort of steal, right. steal everybody's steal thunder the at the end of the night. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. So if if people don't know who you are, which there are there are some young people that may not know who you are. Well, we, we, we never quite cracked America. Right. <laughs> what, what would you tell people that your, your, your music is about? I, th- I think the mu- music is sort of like pretty eclectic, really. Um, mm. Musically, I've tended to be lucky that I've found some good musicians to work with, not being uh, particularly brilliant myself. I've actually worked with some really, really good players. So there's quite a lot of entertainment element in, um, in what I do. And um, I suppose I'm, in a sense, more of a wordsmith than, um, you know, than, a, than a musician. And basically built built up a career. I mean, I I think in a way, one of the first sort of bands that did a form of crowdfunding um, mm. in in this country. We are building up an audience and finding a way of using that audience to you know further the career. Yeah, I was I had that written down. You know, I I think you're a pioneer of crowdfunding. I mean, you, you hear bands like um, uh, oh who was it? There's a there's a prog band from the UK that did it before crowdfunding but you you've been doing it for since yeah the but they, uh, that's probably marillion yeah that's right yeah marillion yeah yeah but just... marillion and me come from the same town aylesbury oh they did oh I yeah yeah, yeah. So, and i went out with the bass player's sister ah right and they're a bit younger than me so i taught them a bit yeah there you go <laughs> yeah, they, uh, yeah they basically took on a lot of the things a lot of the things i was doing like you know hmm. essentially starting your own label Right. And I started my own label um, way back in um, 1970, 1970, 1971, mm. you know, before anybody else did, found a pressing plant to press up records. And that was really the reason I had my first bit of success, because Pete Townsend got to hear the record, liked mm-hmm. it, and um, produced a version. And um, we had a few records out on, on his record label. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then you you were voted... I, I watched something you were saying, you know, you were voted seventh in a BBC poll of British public's favorite lyrics, um, a list that has three Beatles songs, Bohemian Rhapsody, Nights in White Satin, which is that's that's an amazing accomplishment. And and it was from Beware of the Flowers, because I'm sure they're going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, Fantastic we title. We basically realized, um, you know, that's at some point that, you know, the fan base. We, which, had, which had always been good. We'd always had a, a lot of fun with them and done projects mm. together. We used to take coachloads of them to France every year um, for, for like a uh, you know, convention type thing. And um, we did, we'd just done things like a big crowdfunding thing to headline the um, Royal Albert Hall. Mm-hmm. And, and that had worked. And then when 1999, um, for Poetry Week, the BBC had this poll and it was, you know, to find what the nation thought were the greatest lyrics um, written, you know, in the 2000 years since Christ was born. And the, um, and basically people like Bob Dylan, the people were choosing, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a great repertoire of songs. They weren't all voting for one song, but the Otway fans basically got together and decided which song they were going to vote for. And um 1999, not that many people were particularly internet savvy. 
But, uh, the, you know, the Otway fans, um, they are 70% male. And, and there are quite a lot. There are quite a lot of geeks in there, and right. um, you know, our, our, yeah, we we did very very well for voting. As I say, we um, came n number seven in the greatest lyrics, number six yesterday by Paul McCartney. So mm -hmm. this one did nearly as well as yesterday right. by Paul McCartney. There you go. Yeah. So I mean, you you've uh, there's there's so much to touch on. I mean, we, we're not going to be able to touch on everything, but. Let's see. I mean, you 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 are on the gray old gray whistle test, top of the pops. I remember watching. Um, I'm a huge Young Ones fan, and you were on the last episode of the Young Ones. And I'll link all this stuff in the show notes for American fans that don't know what we're talking about. Uh, I remember watching Nevermind the Buzz Buzzcocks with Mel B from the Spice Girls, and you you were in That's the lineup. Right. That was quite that was quite funny because in in um, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, this British television program. They have um, a has-been on the programme and um, somebody, you know, from, from the past. And people have to guess who this has-been is because obviously they're out, out of the public eye. So I did the programme as a has-been. And then we had a big campaign to have another hit record and I got back in the charts. Mm. And I was the only person ever on that programme that went from the has-beens to the current stars. But Mark Lamar even said, you know, still a genius. Still making records, so we had that we had that hit in like nineteen seventy seven, and and then I thought, you know, it's only going to be a few months before I had another one. In fact, right. it was like twenty five years, and it was a matter of I was a dustman before I was, um, you mm. know, a pop star, and I didn't want to go back to being a dustman again. So mm. really worked hard to sort of like keep the fan base going, and the fan base luckily sort of kept hold of the fan base, yeah, pretty intact really over the. Uh, following quarter of a century until we were able to after that um thing realizing that we could sort of get the fans to vote you know to go a poll you know for the nation's favorite lyric we decided that a much more important poll was in fact the charts itself right and we put together a whole campaign it took 18 months but we put together a campaign to sort of like get me back into the charts again and we got mm. uh, got number nine we got back into the british top 10 yeah, which is quite lucky because that was just at that period when the British charts, um, before they changed to having um, on on in online sales as part of the chart, it was still yeah. at the time when most people were getting their music online, but the charts were made up by physical sales. So you you could, if you spent eighteen months working on it, work out a way to sell it just enough records to get into the top ten. Right, and and I think. The difference between Britain and America is is America is so fragmented and, and there's so many different radio stations across the states, whereas England is so centralized. You can be more effective in that in that respect because you only have one chart, whereas here it's like all over the place. And you got things like Top of the Pops as well that that look kind of like a is that stopped? Did they did they end? Yes, yeah, the yeah, yeah, uh, they stopped it. I managed to get back on there again. <laughs> Right. And then a few months after, I mean, it wasn't long after that, that uh, mm. Top of the Pop ceased to exist. And things have changed a bit now. But I think what you were saying about the one of the big differences between America and, and Britain, you know, it, you know, in the sort of like um, in the last century, really, was that there were the BBC was the major radio station. Mm. And you really only needed to crack one radio station and get on that playlist. And you could be... You know, you could be in the charts. So acts could actually become successful quite quickly. Mm. 
which really is the reason I think why there are so many British acts that are that you know that are sort of internationally famous and famous in in, in America. Yeah, it's because you it's a small enough country and you could actually you know succeed it over here and then um, you know because if, if you're successful in in, in the UK. Um, there was a good chance that the Americans would pick up on it. That's for other acts, not me. Right. <laughs> you put together a um, a film called Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. But my my thing is that, you know, failure, it, it, that failure is really a mindset based on standard success in the music industry. And, um, you know, things I talk about on the podcast is is success is what you want it to be. So in a way... You know, you're very successful because you have a massive fan base and you, you've done it for so many years and you've done what you wanted. I suppose you could say failure is what you want it to be as well, equally. True, very the true. Reason, the reason Rock and Roll's greatest failure came about was after I'd had that hit, um, as I was saying, I was expecting to, to have another one. And um, my career went, you know, down and down and down. And it, it did actually get to a bit of an idea. And mm. I thought, I'm never going to get to this point again. So I decided it would be amusing to write a self-effacing book. And rather than um, blame the record companies and the management for, um, for the reason you were in the position, have the record companies and management as the good guys and me being this terrible, awful artist that would do it. Um, and I took it to a publisher and they said, oh, this is great, this is really funny. We'll market you as rock and roll's greatest failure. So because I put that on the book, I then had to go out and promote the book. Mm. And I I found it a lot, a lot funnier and a lot better than trying to sell, trying to sell myself as a success. Because mm. people genuinely do like stories about people's, you know, pratfalls and their banana skin moments than ever they do like somebody bragging about, you know, how successful and how wonderfully they're doing. Oh, for sure. And, you know, and... Nobody else was really, but it, it, I had that market to myself. Nobody else was selling themselves as a failure. Right. Um, in fact, there was one other guy, funnily enough, from Aylesby, the you know, who had sold himself as a bit as a failure. And we had an argument on air because we were mm. invited onto the same show. And I was going, no, 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 you thought that was bad. <laughs> I can trump that. <laughs> um, and then it's just a, a much more amusing area. To work mm. in than trying to sell yourself as a success. Uh, um, but as you say, the problem is that once you, you know, if you sell out the Alba Hall and you have another hit record, um, it gets harder and harder to, you know, get away with it. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, now it's a bit more like a historical thing. When when we made the movie, the movie was quite good because you could sell yourself as Rock and Roll's Failure because you, you, you could put all those pratfalls into the, um, mm. the storyline. And um, and there were a lot of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so and you know made a, an amusing movie. I mean, there's so many bio sort of um, pick programs of of musicians um, in um, in the UK at the moment that the BBC make, and it's just one person after another person just going on about how brilliant somebody is, mm. and nobody goes actually he's a bit of a prat. So you never get the balanced viewpoint. You know, because everybody's sort of like there's some good and there's some bad. But all these programs tend to do is accentuate the um, you know the good bits and try and gloss over the um, 
you know, right. go, 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 the, 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 the terrible bits. And I just found it loads, loads more fun to um, gloss over the good bits and <laughs> concentrate on the bad ones. Right. I mean, it's just a, a, a selling uh, uh, thing, really. And um, I've, done very well, I've done very well out of, you know, being mm. a failure. <laughs> it is funny though the Ameri- the Americans particularly don't like the phrase at all. They really don't like people calling themselves a failure. I know when I came over to you know show my movie in New York, people said, "Oh, you sh- you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't call yourself a failure." Mm. But they, I think the Americans don't really sort of see what a wonderful marketing tool it can be. For sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, if if you look at like going back to the never mind the Buzzcocks, they did try and do a, a an American version. You know, uh, the the success of the Office going, you know, for the two versions, yeah. it it didn't go anywhere. It was awful. <laughs> the humor doesn't translate. Yeah, and culturally, I think that sort mm. of um, self-effacing thing is is quite a British thing. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Let's see. So I did talk to Chris Burkett last year. And Sherry yep. Talon. I wonder if, uh, in, in in that he was talking about uh, recording Montserrat in, in Montserrat, but he did mention a, a, an incident with a theremin. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Something about throwing it out of a helicopter into a volcano or something like that. Oh, um, yeah. Um, my, uh, for, for one of my birthday presents, um, mm. my fans always got together to buy me a birthday present for the last a, a few years. And uh, somebody had seen a, th- a theremin player and thought, oh, I'd be brilliant at that, which, of course, I was, because it's, you know, it's, it's just waving your arms at him. Mean, it sounds horrible, but it looks, you know, it looks pretty impressive. But and, and he, the audience like it, because, it, I mean, it just looks ridiculous. But the um, musicians I work with and people like Chris Burkett um, don't like the theremin because it sounds horrible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but looking great always... Always trumps um, sounding good. So, uh, so, so they basically decided they wanted to. Yeah, yes, yes. Because they had the opportunity to sort of go in a helicopter, they thought it was a <laughs> <laughs> perfect opportunity to get rid of the theremin. That's funny. What What would you say one of your uh, your fondest moments throughout your career has been? Oh, there's loads of them. Um, I could pick out two. Um, specifically um when we first made it i mean i was um really regarded as a joke at school and sort of like in my very early years bullied and you know it did mm. wasn't an easy time and i was considered a joke for probably um sensible reasons um but when we had the hit in 1977 the police sealed off the market square and um atv one of the um largest television companies in the uk filmed this documentary and we had sort of um, 100,000 people in the market square of my hometown and the whole town was closed down for, for mm. an Otway gig. And um, so that, I mean, I like that. That was good. <laughs> and I suppose the other moment is getting that second hit and you've gone 25 years desperately trying to sort of like keep your career going and um, trying to get more success. And, Hits are like one of the few things that count or counted then. I mean, it, it wouldn't be worth it now because people don't know what's in the charts in the UK. Right. But then the charts still mattered. And 
the second hit meant that instead of being like a one-hit wonder from 1977, you were a, an artist that had a chart career spanning 25 years. Right. So going back on top of the pops, you know, quarter of a century after I first did it, ah, that's, that was very, very sweet. That's awesome. From the from the original, you know, the music industry as it was to when now it's streaming and, you know, how have you... How have you kind of pivoted your career if you have, or are you at the point where, you know, you have enough uh, of a fan base, the new, the new style of doing things doesn't really make a difference at this point? Like, what's your opinion on, on how, where it's gone? I, I think the new style of doing things for me um, doesn't really, um, doesn't really alter things. Although I was doing things like I, um, when we had the first lockdown over here, um, I did some Facebook live shows. We were getting 5,000 mm-hmm. views a week, which, you know, isn't huge, but it's still sort of like, um, you know, it's a reasonable amount of people. Um, you know, it's a, an Albert Hall um, size crowd yeah. um, watching every week. So um, so that sort of thing, I mean, I'm involved with that. I mean, I've sort of obviously got the um, sound set up and the, um, you know, the uh, uh, computer set up to be able to do this. So I'm, I'm so it's changed in that. I mean, in that way, I do all that. But um, a lot of the Otway fans still buy um, still buy CDs um, and still buy DVDs. So in 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 that sense, um, in keep going. And I think what has always worked for me, and and I um, and I, I just think is universal and timeless, is the fact that we got a live audience, mm. and the Otway. They come to gigs and they enjoy the live the live performance, and if anything, the um, industry has moved more towards what I'm doing, which is live performance, than away from what I'm doing. If that makes sense, absolutely. Yeah, you know, sounds, you know, touring even uh, even on my sort of level, it's at a small scale, but that that is essentially what I've always done. Um, I've always done that, like over a hundred, you know, hundred gigs a year. And what's interesting is next year, next April, I'm going to be doing my 5,000th show. Wow. You know, which, you know, I thought, what am I going to do? Celebrate my 70th birthday? And I thought, no, lots of people get to 70. Not many people do 5,000 gigs. That's that's a really good, uh, that's, a, that's an amazing achievement. Yeah, what's nice is I've, I, 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 you know, I've always been sort of like narcissist, a bit of a narcissist, and always kept a, a note of everything I've done. So I, I, I'm able to actually list every single one of those five thousand gigs. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Are you speaking of live gigs? Are you still jumping off of step ladders? I, I did do a talk on somersaults at sixty, and um, I, I did, I, I, I did, did that. Um, and then when I was 65, and I was 65, you know, as I became an old age pensioner, as you would be over here, um, I, I, I did a few somersaults at that. But last, the last few years, um, I, I don't do it. As, I don't do it as much. Problem with doing things, a lot of physical stuff like that. If you get, if you get nervous about it, and you get, you know, you freeze up a bit, you're just more likely to hurt yourself. Mm. And uh, but I still do. Um, I still do headbutts and bang my head against a microphone. Is there been a, a really bad, like, incident with doing that that you can remember, or did you've been pretty lucky over the years? Um, I've been pretty lucky over the years. I mean, there has been bad, uh, bad incidents. Like, um, we used to do um, a version of uh, the Osmonds' Crazy Horses, where we used mm. to, in fact, 
impersonations at the end, like Crazy Chickens and um, Crazy Portuguese Man of War. And that always ended with um, Crazy Lemmings, which involved, <laughs> which involved leaping off a stepladder. Um, well, it in fact involved getting my guitarist to leap off a stepladder. And if you if, if you didn't go from the top, I get the audience to suggest whether lemmings dive from a top of a cliff or whether they dive from halfway up. But my um my guitarist on one one um a one gig um couldn't do it because um he was injured, so I got the roadie to do it. Mm. And you know he wasn't a professional like me, right. and he and he did the leap and uh, broke his ankle in um five places. Oh yeah. But uh, I mean, I, I mean, you know, roadies—they're not professionals, right? <laughs> <laughs> when did you come up with a double neck guitar? Because obviously, I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Vai or Michelangelo Betio, but they've they've popularized that and done the double neck stuff. And but you you see, oh, you, no, you may no, have no, done that, that a long time ago. That was very, that, that was very early. That was about yeah. 1981, I think. I made my first ambidextrous guitar. Mm. Um, I'd worked with um, a guitarist who's he's not, not with us anymore, a guy called Ollie Halsell. Um, any aficionado, guitar aficionados would possibly have heard of him. And he was a left-handed player. And mm. um, I remember restringing his, getting him to, re, you know, he got me to re, restring his guitar. And um, I'm left-handed, uh, you know, um, in terms of writing and all that sort of thing. And I realised I could actually play a few chords the other way round. Mm. And then that's where the idea came from. And what I did was actually um, sawed up two Gibson guitars, <laughs> and I, I was putting them together and realizing that the the um, guitar case would actually be have to be really quite quite long. Um, then I thought, well, actually, you can the no no strings in the middle. You can just like fold you know fold it in half and hinge it. Mm. And then I realized, ah, oh, it flaps. <laughs> And um, all these other people, if you if you watch some all these other people, I mean, they obviously play it a lot better than me, but they they don't flap. No, they don't flap. <laughs> My, Michelangelo's got one with four necks, like two up and two down. Have you ever thought about doing four necks? No, I, I can only. I've only got two hands. Mm. <laughs> That's fantastic. What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did that teach you? Um, I suppose, I mean, writing the, um, writing the book, the, the Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure book, I started writing it as a, started writing as a joke because I said, oh, well, you know, I, I wasn't in a, a, a very good place. My career was, mm. um, and my, my career was an all-time low. The place I was living in would halfway through the building work and then found out we hadn't got any planning permission. So that stopped. And yep. um, my wife had had enough and decided to up and go. And so I started writing this book, uh, Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. And I thought I, I would use that bit of humour and just sort of like not not blame anybody else. But, you know, I was and what I found when I was writing it that so much, so much of the time and the reason I was in the position I was in was nobody else's fault but my own. And um, finding that and finding the humour of that and also because of the way the humour of the book worked, that, you know, if anything, you know, if anything good happened, then that, that was somebody else's responsibility. And if anything bad happened, that was, that was mine because I was a sort mm. of, yeah, the thing of the, uh, you know, the conceit of the book 
Um, but to actually find out a lot of the time that was true um, was very eye-opening. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I think it did turn around after that because um, I just started being a bit more sensible. That's great. So what does music mean to you? As I say, I'm not, I'm not a great player. I mean, um, Bob Dylan was sort of like my my big influence and always as a, a wordsmith. I mean, so I've always worked with, as I say, worked with some ridiculously good players and really, really good musicians. So, mm. I mean, I suppose it means listening to them. Awesome. All right. Great. Where can people find out about you um, and go listen to your music? Oh, well, the website, johnotway.com, um, is, is a good place to start. Um, what, what is interesting these days is with the, the, the thing of YouTube. Um, there is just a mountain of stuff on um, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I've also started, I've, I've also got a Vimeo account. So um, I've tended to put uh, stuff up on Vimeo. Oh, okay. The other thing I know with YouTube is a lot of really um, awful stuff gets put up on there. And I, I don't mean awful in terms of, uh, uh, I just mean quality, like bad sort of, um, you know. Uh, Cell phone recordings. And, yeah. uh, phone things. So I have tried sort of like every so often to sort of like try and upload a few, a few, you know, some stuff of, you know, better quality in terms of filmically, mm. not necessarily. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, the the good thing about that is now people can go watch stuff from the seventies and you know stuff that people had on their you know VHS tapes and and they've uploaded and now you get this record of of everything that went on that maybe I know there was a bunch of stuff that got destroyed in in fires in various like Doctor Who for instance the early Doctor Who's got destroyed um, and people still had tapes so they could upload it so people could watch it so. Um, oh no! You, it, yeah, it is wonderful. All that, all that historical stuff. You can spend ages, can't you? You can just think of it. Yeah. So, have you, have you ever seen anything that that popped up? Like, oh, I don't remember that. Well, when we made the movie, um, uh, basically the um, the movie was a lot of archive archive mm. stuff. So we did trawl as much archive stuff as we could and got people to send whatever archive stuff we had. Um, so. It, it's only occasionally that something something comes up and go. Did I really do that? <laughs> hmm. That's fantastic. All right. So uh, at the end, I like to play a, a track from the artist I'm interviewing. So is there anything particular that you'd like to play for for my audience? Ah, what what should I pick? Pick something from let's let's pick something. Um, let's pick something from Montserrat. Okay. Because that was that was the last album. Because that was that, great doing. That was great doing Montserrat. Because we were in Sir George Martin's house, and you right. Oh, I forgot uh, to. Yeah, I forgot to ask about that. That's that's fantastic. Because the original studio burnt down or got destroyed in a hurricane yeah. or something. And I'd watched this program about uh, about George Martin, and I'd written this song called "Dancing with Ghosts," and um, thought, where would you record it? And you just thought, oh, in Montserrat, and because mm. we couldn't use the uh, the old studio because that would have been hurricane and volcanoed. Was actually stayed at Sir George Martin's house, and the corridors had Linda McCartney prints, and every bedroom had a gold wow. record. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm recording in the basement. So as you went down there, knowing that you were the first people to record on Montserrat since the Rolling Stones recorded Steel Wheels. 
you know, you felt the weight of, um, you know, importance on you. Mm -hmm. And sure. um, I think this, I think this, this track probably sums everything up. Um, it's, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> is there, is there a specific story about that or is it? based on on it's based on my life <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic all right yeah so we'll hear that this has been a fantastic conversation i really really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me today yeah continued success and um that's great yes healthy. and if, if anybody makes it over to the uk next april the second is my five thousandth gig at the shepherd's bush empire awesome yeah that's that's fantastic so all right thank you so much Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is John Otway with I don't know what I'm doing, but I shouldn't be doing this. Out of desire And into the raging storm Found an oasis one brief moment of calm There's an electricity in the wire But you don't know what the voltage is I don't know what I'm doing But I shouldn't be doing this Into the fire And out of the comfort zone A little affection this can't do any harm Just a brief encounter But from the impression that it left on your lips I knew what I was doing But I shouldn't be doing this Action in the spotlight The actions speak louder than words I wish I hadn't spoken I wish you hadn't heard Out of monochrome This could be in colour 
we could do something sublime. You asked me what I wanted. I just made a wish. Put that genie back into the bottle. I shouldn't be doing this. electricity and there's fire but you don't know what the difference is I don't know what I'm doing <laughs>